0: hello and welcome to the voices of freedom podcast my name is dennis gill and i will be your host today and if you are new to the podcast, welcome. I hope that you will find what we are doing here both informative and entertaining. At least that's what we're trying for anyway. Uh, I also uh, want to thank all of those who are return uh, listeners. Uh, I thank you for your continued support of what we are doing. Uh, today's interview is with Vietnam veteran Joseph Saida. Before I begin with that, I want to give you guys just a little bit of... Uh, background about what we are doing here at the Voices of Freedom what we're about we are a 501c3 we are part of a larger organization known as the Americans in Wartime Experience what we do here in the Voices of or with the Voices of Freedom project is to record and preserve the stories of Americans in wartime now those Americans can be both civilian anybody who has a wartime story for instance Uh, We have interviewed Rosie the Riveters. Certainly they were not in combat, but they definitely contributed to the war effort. We have interviewed USO dancers. We have interviewed witnesses to the attacks at 9-11. We have interviewed first responders to both the Pentagon and to the World Trade Center. We have also interviewed uh, many who have uh, eyewitness accounts to, to events such as Pearl Harbor, I remember one interview we had done with a lady. She was nine years old at the time. Her father was in the Army, and she can recall that day uh, with pr- pretty vividly, as you can imagine. It, it was uh, a day that she'll never forget. So in addition to civilians, we interview and preserve the stories of combat veterans. So if somebody served in combat, no matter what war it was, or if maybe it wasn't even a war. Maybe it was some type of uh, military action overseas. For instance, we have interviewed uh, troops that were on the ground in Grenada. Um, Not declared war, but definitely uh, combat action. So, why do we do it? We do it because, one, we want to honor those who served. Honor those um, veterans who fight for our freedom, who put their lives on the line so that we can be free. We We honor those men and women by preserving their stories and providing them a copy of their story. Um, because it's important that their family members, especially family members who aren't even born yet, it's important that they know what their, their grandfather or their father or their uncle, what they did uh, for this country. And the other reason we do it is because it's important to preserve history. And we learn from history. And learning from those who are actually there, hearing uh, about their experiences in their own words, is probably the best way to learn. You can read a book from somebody who interviewed somebody else, but that's second-hand, third-hand knowledge. Um, You can watch a movie. You can watch a a documentary. But to hear uh, about the experiences of these veterans from them, from their perspective, what it was that they felt, what it was that they heard and saw, that is the most, uh, in, in our opinion, the best way to learn because there's no sugarcoating any of it. It's, it's what happened. There's no politics involved. There's no editing. There's, no, um, there's nothing like that. It's, it's, it's what happened straight from the horse's mouth, if you will. So that's why we do what we do. All of our interviews are available or soon will be available for anyone who wants to watch them and learn from them. Uh, They are currently available on our website at www.americansinwartime.org. We've got uh, over 620, 630 interviews conducted, with about 550 of those interviews currently available on our website. And we are adding more interviews as we do them all the time. So not only can you watch our interviews on our website, you can also help support the project Again, we are a 501c3. There is absolutely no cost to the veteran uh, for, for our services. But we do rely on donations, and it makes everything that we do possible. So you can make a donation uh, and find out more about what we do by going over to our website. Our interviews are also available on YouTube and Vimeo, as well as right here in a podcast form. So we're taking select interviews that we have done in the past, And we are turning them into podcasts. And that gives you the advantage of listening to them on your way to work, on your way to the store. Maybe you're on vacation and you've got a long drive. You want to listen to some of our interviews. uh, You can listen to it while you're working out, things like that. So that's why we've decided to do this podcast. So without me rambling on any further, because that's not why you're here. You're here to hear uh, the story of veterans in combat. I want to to introduce you to Joseph Saida. He's a Vietnam veteran. Joseph, like many veterans in Vietnam, uh, found his way into the U.S. Army via the draft. It wasn't uh, wasn't his original desire to go in the army. Uncle Sam called him, uh, and he answered that call like many many thousands did. Uh, His military occupational specialty was 91B, and that is known as an Army combat medic. Uh, After he went to Advanced Infantry School. At Fort Sam Houston in Texas, Uh, Joseph found his way into Vietnam in 1967, uh, and he would be assigned to the 502nd Division 101st Airborne B Company. While he was there, he was known to the guys uh, in his platoon as Doc. uh, When he was inside the wire, when he was outside the wire, meaning when he was out in the field, they referred to him as Band-Aid. And they have a very good reason for doing that. Uh, the, the, the enemy would actually hear uh, people call Doc and, uh, or, or refer to as a medic, and they would uh, try to kill them. Obviously, it was advantageous for the enemy to kill the medic that, uh, that would be there to treat the wounded. It would actually put uh, the enemy, in this case America, uh, at a disadvantage. So they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to get their, their medic killed. So they referred to him as Band-Aid. Um, Joseph's first experience in combat was to take care of a Vietnamese child that was wounded by an illumination round. Um, he goes on to say that as a medic, he was required to carry a 100-pound pack along with his rifle everywhere he went. And that 100-pound pack contained the medical supplies that he needed to uh, to serve the wounded uh, that he would uh, be tasked with treating. Joseph was awarded the Silver Star for his actions uh, in South Vietnam, and uh, it was near Firebase Cherryhill in the uh, A Shahan Valley in Vietnam. And I'm sure I'm not saying that correctly, but um, not important. What is important is that he he earned that Silver Star. Um, it was during a uh, a mortar attack. Uh, that he uh, spent seven hours aiding and assisting wounded soldiers waiting for them to be evac on a helicopter. And it wasn't until later, till after all of this, that he, war- that, he, uh, that he discovered that he had actually been wounded himself when he had taken shrapnel from a mortar round. Uh, he goes on to say that uh, when he got out of the military and came home from Vietnam... As many Vietnam veterans, he didn't talk much about what happened. Um, he didn't want. Uh, he saw what people, uh, how they reacted uh, when they found out that uh, that that somebody was over there fighting during Vietnam. And as you know, during that time period, uh, the service members were not treated well. So, so Joseph he didn't talk much about his service for many, many, many years. He, also, he does talk about in 1982 when he was present at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial at the dedication to it uh, to honor those veterans who served and gave the ultimate sacrifice for our country. Um, Joseph says that he and other Vietnam veterans will never allow service members to be forgotten again. And as I said earlier, one of the reasons we do what we do is to honor those veterans because we don't want them to ever be forgotten. Never again will... Uh, our country turn its back on its military those guys were out there doing a job in the case of joseph he didn't volunteer to do the job uncle sam drafted him and he did that job and he did it with honor and he did it um he did it so that we can all be free so without further ado i give you the interview of joseph saida
1: this is Greg Pass with the Americans in the Wartime Museum. Today's date is March 29, 2015, and I'm conducting an interview with Joe Saida in Woodbridge, Virginia at VFW 1503. Joe, would you please give us your full name, your date of birth, and where you were born?
2: Sure. Joseph J. Saida. Uh, my date of birth is 51847. I'm 67 years old, and I was born in Washington, D.C.,
1: And what war did you participate in? I was
2: in the Vietnam War.
1: Do you remember where you were when you found out that you would ultimately be involved in the conflict in Vietnam?
2: Yes, I was in Washington, D.C. I was drafted. I was sent to uh, Fort Holiburg, got on the bus, gave me some lunch. I thought I would be uh, going back home for dinner. But uh, at that point, they took me to North Carolina, Fort Bragg, where I... Started my basic training, unbeknownst to me, and uh, for the next eight weeks uh, thereabouts, I participated in all the the functions, the good functions the army had to offer, uh, and including uh, crawling through the the muddy uh, 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 the muddy pits of the. Uh, Where they shot ammo, uh, shot rifles at you, and uh, and shot uh, over your head. They shot uh, and crawled through the mud and simulated uh, wartime, as it were, and uh, participated in all the good basic training things and got in real good shape. And um, did
1: you know your MOS at that time? No, I didn't have an
2: MOS at that time. Uh, they decided for me what my MOS would be, which would be a 91 Bravo. Now, it was a 91 Bravo, and I said, what is a 91 Bravo? Well, all my guys, uh, they were all grunts. Uh, They were all infantry guys. And uh, 91 Bravo, what is a 91 Bravo? Well, you're going to be a medic. A medic? I'd never been a medic. I've never had any medical experience. Why are they choosing me as a medic? Well... I guess, uh, when they did my first interview, decided that I was stupid enough to be a uh, be medic because we were pretty disposable, so I guess I was disposable. Uh, so I became a medic and uh, uh, then went to Fort Sam Houston where I did advanced military training, my advanced training, AIT, uh, infantry training or what have you. And uh, from there, uh, you know, I got to go on a a little R&R after I graduated, medical training. Uh, And I I studied pretty hard because there was really nothing to do in Fort Sam Houston but study and uh, go through PT. And uh, then they gave us a little time off, 30 days. And then the next thing I know, I was on a plane and on Tiger Airlines going to uh, Orlando no, excuse me, I'm sorry Oakland, California and then that was 1960 uh, 67, 68 in that time frame and uh, I was in a hangar they brought us to Oakland and from Oakland got, I believe, the Tiger Airlines took us on a, a plane and the next thing I know I was landed in Camron Bay. And I got off the, the plane and it was the beginning of the morning, dawn, and the sun was as bright as you could be. As just round and glowing gold. And it was I got off the plane and the heat hit me like crazy. It was like bam. Here I am. Well, the next thing I know, uh, I'm assigned to my unit, which was 101st Airborne. Uh, And they put me on a bus, and I was next to a a guy on the bus. He was a weatherman. I said, you're a weatherman? I said, that sounds like a good job. Can I go with you? I'll be your assistant. He said, "Uh, no, I don't need an assistant. Next thing I know, uh, as a medic, I'm assigned to... The second of the five O deuced uh, everyone hundred percent everyone and uh, that night I felt oh, where the heck am I you know and you know it seems like in Vietnam they give you all kinds of different names well you're a sergeant you're a corporal your your last you're just your last name and then my name was Doc had a new name I was Doc. So I was a different person, actually. So it was like being almost like in a, a movie. So you were a different actor. And and from there on, I was Doc. And and, and my boys called me Band-Aid because they didn't want the, uh, the enemy to be calling me Doc. So they, my, my special name was Band-Aid. So <clears throat> I was signed to a unit. B Company is second of the 502. And I was, of course, uh, assigned to Headquarters Company, because all medics are assigned to Headquarters Company. But then they put you with a a platoon. So that night, all I could see was flashing uh, flashing lights. uh, All I could hear is machine gun fire and helicopters trace around, see trace-arounds all around. I was going, oh my God, what am I doing here? Well, that morning it seemed like uh, uh, I was up all night. It seemed like I was, I didn't get a wink of sleep. So, that night all I could see is glowing uh, had something called the uh, They dropped illumination grenades from the Jolly Green Giant, is what they they called it. And illumination grenades, well, no, phosphorescent uh, on parachutes. And it lit up the whole sky so our troops could see uh, what was going on around them. They could see the enemy. Well, one of these illumination canisters Went through a, a, a villager's roof and went right between the legs of a, a 16-year-old boy. Well, that morning, as I woke from a, a dead sleep or dream, um, I, can, I can heard, boxy, boxy. Well, that's a Vietnam word for for doctor boxy boxy and they're yelling so I woke up and, and looked and the, on the on a door they had this child 16 year old child and his leg was split open from his his thigh all his thigh was split open wide open burnt from this illumination round that fell and burnt his and and cut his inner thigh. Well, you know, I have never worked on on anybody, you know, wounded. I mean, I I was in San Antonio at the medical center, and we practiced a lot of stuff. But all of a sudden, I could see the book coming back to me in, in, in vivid, vivid light. It was like pages turning out one after another. So I hooked up IVs and put uh, medication on the legs and wrapped him up so good and uh, proceeded to try to evacuate this child and went on to uh, Route 1 and and tried to stop anybody I could stop so we could get, get this kid evacuated. Well, at that point nobody wanted to evacuate this child and we had, and I was brand new believe me, brand new, just as raw as you can be so I had a M16 and I stopped a big old bus had everybody get off that bus and put that kid on that bus and told the driver to take him to the hospital, whether you understood me or not, I'm sure they did because the kid was wounded in bad shape but I had IVs in him and and, and treated him. And uh, that was my first experience as a combat medic, treating somebody else that wasn't my own. And uh, it was kind of interesting that I survived that and and said, well, okay, I guess I do okay. And then that, that morning, I was assigned to my, really assigned to my platoon. And... Uh, from there on, we started uh, guarding bridges, and then after that, we were, started hunting the boonies, as they say. So I was kind of a, a grunt medic. Uh, I wasn't one of those. Well, i would just say I wasn't wasn't really uh, that afraid. It was I was out beside myself because I was Doc Joe. I was not me. I was Doc Joe. So and we all had different names. So it kind of put us aside. And uh, I think because I was Doc Joe, I survived a lot of traumas and uh, PTSDs and things. Although uh, a lot of times we do think about a lot of things. And, and I've been in a lot of firefights, lots of firefights, but in a lot of ways, it was, as I said, beside myself, not me. So it was, sometimes I was just on a camping trip, and and camaraderie was the main thing. With they were my boys, and I had to protect my boys. And it's kind of uh, I was able to survive a lot of things, and I was a lot of. I was able to help a lot of people, I think, on a lot of occasions. And on occasion, I couldn't help anybody. Uh, Even though I thought I could survive anything, and at one point, you know, felt so good about what I was doing that I thought there was no stopping me. I I could pretty much take care of everybody. Well, sometimes you just can't. Take care of everybody and, and they die in your arms. And that's the sad part of it.
0: We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Voices of Freedom podcast. The Voices of Freedom is a division of the Americans in Wartime Experience, a 501c3 dedicated to honoring, educating, and inspiring. The mission of the Voices of Freedom is to record and preserve the wartime oral histories of Americans, both civilian and military. If you'd like to learn more or to donate to our project, please visit our website at www.americansinwartime.org
2: And going beyond that, you know, maybe that's, you know, even though I think about it, sometimes I I felt so good that I could help some people. I was able to... uh, an award called the Silver Star uh, in a place called Camp Curry, and uh, in the Ashaw Valley. It's called the Valley of Death. And the Ashaw was—I was—I uh, had saved up all my R and R. So at that point, even though I had a lot of firefights, and after about nine and a half months, I was able to go back to the rear and be, they assigned me to the, be a, the doctor's me- uh, right hand guy and his driver. So I, we went to Da Nang and did autopsies and this and visited guys in the field and I thought I was, had it made. Well, there was one last push before I went on to R&R that I had been saving up for the whole time. I never took in country R&R or out-of-country r but I was going to go to Bangkok. And I had lots of money in my pocket. But my doctor was going into the field by himself, and I guess I'm one of those guys who said, I can't leave you out there by yourself. I'm going with you, and then I'll go away. I figured this is very safe. Well, we landed, had a big operation in the Ashaw Valley in a place called Camp Curryhee. It was a big push. The whole division was there three twenty seven, five oh first, uh five oh second, hundred first, all over the place. Everybody was there. Well, that evening uh, we were attacked and and they were hitting us with mortars and everything they had. And I was out there and I'll never forget there was a gentleman, his name was Sergeant Major Sabolowski. he uh, was a very famous um, sergeant major, survived uh, Vietnam in a lot of ways, if anybody looks him up, Sa- Sergeant Sabolovsky, Sergeant Major Sabolowski was a big time guy, uh, Navy Cross, uh, almost a Medal of Honor. Anyway, we got hit and uh, I grabbed my medical bag and started running out and bringing guys back to our medical tent, which I built that that morning and afternoon, and started bringing guys back, and Sergeant but Sergeant Major Savalowski, was directing guys without a helmet just saying, Go troops! Good job! So, anyway, uh, you know, in Vietnam we have something that we know every Vietnam veteran knows they know incoming what is called incoming and everybody knows the sound of incoming well I knew the sound of incoming and as I heard incoming I knew the sound of it I knew the whistle but God told me and I do know God told me to dive well there's a certain kill zone when a mortar hits and if you're in that kill zone you're dead God told me to dive and I dove under the kill zone well I was a little bit freaked some people around me got wounded and uh, I was grabbing guys more guys and bringing them back well adrenaline was my my friend at that point and as I grabbed guys and brought them to the tent we we went on through the night seven eight nine hours bringing bodies and it's a shame the bodies we had to move so we can we put the bodies over in one spot and move the the living to the to the medevacs and finally it was over uh, for a while it was calm and uh, we got back to the 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 tent and uh, I said man I don't feel right so I took off my boot and I turned it over and it was nothing but blood and I went whoa so I got up and I guess the adrenaline had worn out and uh, at that point uh, at that point I said whoops well they tell me that I refused to be evacuated in uh just in case something else happened so the next thing I know uh, I was on a helicopter going to Denang and uh and I was in couldn't couldn't walk and I had a uh, shrapnel in my Achilles tendon and uh, through my legs and my chest, both sides of my chest. And they, uh, as I was in the, the ambulance, the, the chaplain came up and gave me my purple heart. So. And then a little while later, Sergeant Savolowski, Sergeant Major Sobolowski, uh, had put me in for a Silver Star and uh, you know, I won a few awards, and proud of them. So.
1: So you weren't you weren't aware you were hit until you saw the blood in your shoe. I
2: was not aware.
1: How long do you think you were working between the time that that round went off and? Yeah, kind of uh, seven eight hours. Really?
2: Yeah, seven eight hours of getting hit and running this way and that way all over. Yeah, had no idea, and was not tired. Was not tired until I sat down. And I sat down and it was whoa. And I said, okay, give me, uh, and I said, uh, give me a little codeine. Give me a little, little codeine. I'll be okay. So I uh, said I refused to be evacuated. But I, in the morning when everything was calm, then my doctor made me get on a, a chopper and get evacuated so I could get taken care of properly. So I went from Da Nang to Japan to home. I wanted to go back, really. I wanted to go back. Uh, nope, not going back. Going home. Um, well, I never had the trauma of of getting spat on or coming home and getting abused because that wouldn't be me in the first place. Uh, I I was on a, a plane. Uh, Uh, in a stretcher all the way back so when I woke up when I woke up I was in an ambulance on 495 going to Fort Meade and I woke up and looked out the window of that ambulance you know one of them old ambulances military ambulance just little square holes and I looked I'm on 495. So, How could you be in one place in one minute in another place and I, I, I've been transported? This is, you know, sci-fi. How could this happen? And next thing I know, I'm I'm home. And that is a, that's a trauma in itself, you know? So that's why I say you know i survived a lot of that ptsd you no know, you know because it was a movie to me in a lot of ways but i was outside of myself
1: how old were you when you were in uh, 18
2: 19.
1: so a lot of 18 year old kids today some are even still in high school some are in college what do you say to a you had a conversation with an 18 year old right now who wanted to enlist in the service
2: what what advice would you give him use all the knowledge that you can gain all the knowledge that you can keep yourself safe Uh, we fight for our country and our and our loved ones but we fight for our brothers that we serve with and you know Absorb as much as you can, and you'll be okay. You'll be okay.
1: You were young, so you probably weren't married at the time. Right? No, not married. Uh, How did you communicate with your 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 family back home?
2: Uh, well, we just wrote letters. we, we didn't have <laughs> the technology of today. You know, we don't have Skype and uh, email, Facebook, and all the good things that today's world brings. We had no phones. We couldn't communicate by phone. You know, there was no phones. So we had letters. We just had letters. They gave us free mail. So that was kind of a good thing.
1: What kind of food were you eating?
2: Well, at first, when I first got there, we were eating eating sea rations in cans. And I had a hundred pound pack. Rucksack is what they call it hundred pounds. I had my medical equipment that I had to carry, with all the the, the little pills and morphine and and uh, IV bags and things like that, and sutures and everything else that I carried. But then, as I said, I was a grunt medic, so I carried some extra stuff. I carried a M16. I had two bandoliers. I looked like shaved Rivera, you know, with two bandoliers. And that wasn't enough for me because I had a a K-Bar knife, and my dad sent me a Buck knife, so I had two knives, sharp as hell. Then I had a 45 on this hip. And then, just for for extra protection, I had a couple, three grenades. And then, later on, uh, I got my first law. So I carried the law with me too. Uh, I was pretty good with the law, uh, you know, if I had to shoot it. So, yeah, I was a grunt medic. So I even uh, wanted to walk point one day, and uh, point is where you're out front and you're you're on automatic with your M16. But they wouldn't let me do that, so I got to walk slack for justice you know, a few miles through the jungles. But that's another story. Um.
1: Uh,
2: as far as food, okay, those cans were very, very heavy. And I like to eat. So uh, later on, they, became, they they came out with these little LERP packages. They're little. All you got to do is add hot water and you're, you're good to go. So they're very light and not not as heavy. So I was very happy when that came on. Uh, and we would trade off, you know, guys would trade off, you know, their their little cookies or, or fudge stuff that they had in little cans still. So we'd trade
1: off like that. Do you remember when the first time you took fire?
2: Let's see. First time I took fire. Well, uh, took fire a lot. Well, my first time out in the, in, in the jungles after we, we were guarding bridges at first, you know, for the first month or so, it seemed. And then we, we started humping the boonies and then then we got in a, a few firefights. One time I had a, a, a dog... That was walking, walking uh, point with us. Uh, and we got in a hell of an ambush. Well, that's, actually, I'm going past myself. That was another time. The first time, I, uh, I really took some fire. We were humping the boonies, and then we got in a big firefight. Well, I was a medic, and one of my boys got hit. So... I had a squad that was supposed to surround me as I worked worked on a guy, and uh, as I was working on him, my guys took off in in chase of 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 the enemy where where the where the firepower was coming from. Well, I I had been working on my guy, and all of a sudden bullets started raining down on us, and I covered him with my body and I received the army commendation with a valor device on that but I can remember the bullets singeing my hair on my arms on both sides Uh, and I grabbed my 45 and I shot a couple rounds at there and then that was my first experience there with the firefight
1: do
2: you remember what was going through your head? No, I don't remember what was going through my head. It wasn't. It wasn't fear. It wasn't fear, and I don't know why. It was to take care of this guy, and uh, that's what was going through my head. What was going through my head was this: How do I fix this guy? What What do I got to do now? So, we got to get him out of here. How do we get him out of here? And at that point, again, the book started going through my mind. Just just everything came back. And now I had never built anything that I don't think in my life other than, you know, sandbags. Uh, and I started chopping down uh, big limbs and, and making out of a poncho a something I could carry this guy with and we got him out of there and on this stretcher that I've improvised and I have no idea how I did that, I have no idea to this day what happened and how I did that, but I did it and, and I had IVs in him and that's, and got him out of the jungle onto a helicopter and there again there you go felt uh, like a million bucks I did something outside of myself. That I wasn't—I wasn't that person, but I was. You know, so at that point, uh, they gave me a medal.
1: How do you think your wartime experience affected your life?
2: Mm, I was blessed. I was blessed a lot of ways. I'm a—I'm kind of a back back of the corner guy don't brag don't tell anybody nothing it's probably you, you telling now it's more than I've told people in 30 years uh, unless they're very close friends how how do I that see I have to go back to the PTSD and I know a lot of my friends didn't do well with, with it and they live every day of their lives my attitude is, it was a moment in my life. It wasn't my life. So, I went there. I woke up on, on 495, and I was a different person. I was back to where I was with my friends. who came to see me in the hospital, and, and, and I said, well, you know, we move on, because nobody... I mean, first of all, back then nobody wanted to be associated with a a guy who was from Vietnam, so we didn't talk about it. We were different people. So I guess I continued with that thought, and I wasn't there, you know? I never talked to anybody about it. So I continued not to talk to anybody about it. Uh, I didn't discuss anything. That's why nobody discusses anything when they're from Vietnam most of the time because we have a saying that don't mean nothing. And that's where the saying comes from. Nobody will understand. Nobody. Uh, unless you've been there. So that's kind of where my head was when I came back and we just moved on with our lives. Well, I moved on with my life. Because I was alive, and uh, you know, hell I was so alive that uh, I just enjoyed the hell of myself as, as fast as hard as I could. So I said, "Well, I got out." So now I do. I went on.
1: During the ceremony about an hour ago, a gentleman speaking made a comment about how the Vietnam veterans weren't welcomed home, and that a lot of Vietnam veterans have made it their mission to welcome home returning soldiers. And since the Gulf War, I think that's played true. Do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Yes. Uh, we had some ceremonies when the wall, Vietnam Veterans Wall was was commensurated. Uh, I was there at that those points. We had a parade, you know, and that was pretty cool. It was a, it was a uh, freeing experience, you know, that we were finally welcomed back as as as, as soldiers who did our part. Uh, and yes, we will never let that happen to soldiers again. There's no spitting on on soldiers for being baby killers and things like that. I did not experience that, nor would I have. And that seems to be the realm of everybody that comes back or a lot of soldiers that came back from Vietnam. You know, we were spit on. Well, I just can't... See, I can't comprehend that because that didn't happen to me. Nor I wouldn't allow that to happen to me. Uh, So, you got to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. I don't think that happened to everybody. I don't... I do not believe that. Uh, Because... There were times uh, that, and I was from Washington, D.C., where there were a lot of protests going on, and I, I never saw any of that. Never. So...
1: Anything else you wanted to document?
2: No, well, I'm going to tell uh, my grandbabies uh, that, that I hope that they never have to go to war. I hope that the children... The next generation never has to go to war, and they say war is hell. It is hell. There's a lot of tragedy, uh, even though you might think you're in a movie. It's real life, uh, and tragedy uh, happens. But there's evil in the war, in the world, and we ha- we always have to take care of of our families. And when there's evil in the war, in the world, we have to remove the evil no matter what. We just have to live as Americans and and be free as as we all should be. That's what this country was founded on.
1: Well, personally, and on behalf of the Americans in Wartime Museum, I thank you for your service and spending the time
0: to share your experiences
1: with us. Thank Thanks. you. I
2: appreciate it
0: hope you enjoyed this interview. If you'd like to find out more about the Voices of Freedom Project and the Americans in Wartime experience, or if you'd like to donate, please visit our website at www.americansinwartime.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast.